Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and good afternoon, and uh, um, good morning for whoever is connecting with us across the globe. Welcome to yet another interesting and insightful conversation with NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. This is your host, uh, Dr. Huda Al-Khazemi uh, from NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. Tonight, I'd like to introduce to you our esteemed guest speaker, uh, Professor uh, Katibali Srinivasan, uh, who is our uh, pillar in NYU Abu Dhabi and uh, NYU in general. Uh, Professor uh, Srinivasan, he he's the Dean Emeritus of NYU Tandon School of Engineering and also the Eugene Kleiner Professor of, for Innovation and Mechanical Engineering. Um, he's also a professor of physics and mathematics, uh, which is a very rare um, occasion to have an uh, uh, in, in our institution. Uh, he was, uh, as I said, the dean of NYU Tandon School of Engineering from 2013 to 2018. At NYU, he has the distinction of being university professor, which is a, a title conferred upon scholars whose work is inter disciplinary and reflects exceptional breadth um, as we will see tonight. He holds professorship in the Department of Physics and, um, and at Courant Institute of Mathematics of Sci uh, Mathematical Science. Um, our esteemed guest tonight, uh, research expertise is in fluid dynamics in a broad sense and has touched, touched a few other areas in applied physics as well. Uh, lucky for us uh, and for our topic of interest uh, tonight. He's the author of over 240 research paper. He has supervised about 30 PhD, student, uh, 30 PhD thesis and mentored numerous of students uh, at Yale and elsewhere um, around the world. Uh, he has served uh, in the scientific community um, in several capacities in both uh, uh, of, uh, official and scholarly capacities as well, has been instrumental in creating the new entities um, um, such as uh, a topical group in statistical and nonlinear physics of the American uh, uh, Physical Society is greatly interested in human rights, especially as they apply to scientists um, and presently holds a unique position with respect uh, to international science and science policy, especially in developing countries. Uh, tonight, he's with us as well as a PI for Center uh, for Space Sciences in NYU Abu Dhabi. And he's going to touch base on a very unique topic of what do you, uh, what to do when the sun turns violent, uh, violent in 2025, uh, 2025. We will touch base on the storyline behind the storms and the sun. So uh, the sun generates a huge magnetic storm with some regularity and streams of billions of Ton, uh, of tons of, of charged particles. These storms uh, are supposed to reach their peak activity in 2025. With it comes the likelihood of large 
impact on Earth with potential damage to our communication systems, power grids, um, causing enormous uh, strife and financial loss. Uh, we missed few storms in the last 25 years. Will we be lucky to miss them again? This talk will discuss what happens inside the sun that leads to such a storm. Professor Sirini, as we all know you here in the Institute, it's a pleasure to have you on board. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. Um, can you uh, hear me now? Loud and clear. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good day to all of you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hoda, for your kind introduction. You actually already gave my talk um, by summarizing it. I also wish to thank the NYUAD Institute for asking me to speak today, especially Nahid for her sustained engagement. I've known the excellent staff members of the Institute for many years since the time it was formed, and I want to send them all my greetings. So let me begin by noting that it is a wonderful time uh, to be doing space science in UAE. And I will now try to share my screen. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, time to be doing uh, space science in the UAE in particular and those in NYU Abu Dhabi because um, this month of February 2021 is the 36th uh, new year of Mars. This is an artificial date, of course. The calendar began on April 11, 1955, and each year of Mars is roughly two Earth years. But more importantly, on February 9th, UAE's uh, HOPE mission entered the Mars orbit, and it will remain there and study the Mars atmosphere, which I think we are all very excited about. And here is the first uh, image um, that was uh, sent uh, from the HOPE mission um, uh, here. Furthermore, on February 11th, China's uh, Tianwen-1 entered the Mars orbit and will land a rover on Mars in May. And here is the first image um, it sent. And on February 18th, NASA's Mars 2020 landed its uh, Mars rover, Perseverance. And here is the image it sent, the first image it, it sent. Six other spacecraft have been orbiting Mars, three from the US, two from Europe, and one from India. There is never uh, before a confluence of such important events happening to study one planet, except of course our Earth. It is thus a great time to do space science, and I already said NYUAD is a great place to do that. And if I might be modest for a few seconds, our center is in the middle of uh, doing all this. I want to show you a short video um, which will communicate to you the excitement of the Mars mission. I chose this video in preference to some others simply because it was available. Others are as exciting as well. This is Perseverance where the uh, touching down on Mars. In preparation for parachute deploy and to roll over to give the radar a better look at the ground. 
Applicant indicates shoot deployed. The navigation has confirmed that the parachute has deployed and we are seeing significant deceleration. I'll skip a little bit. At an altitude of about 10 kilometers, 9.5 kilometers above the surface. Skip a little bit more. And subsequently, the priming of the landing engines. Our current velocity is about 90 meters per second at an altitude of 4.2 kilometers. Skip a little bit more. Is 83 meters per second at about 2.6 kilometers from the surface of Mars. With confirmation that the back shell has separated. We are currently performing the divert maneuver. Current velocity is about 75 meters per second at an altitude of about a kilometer off the surface of Mars. We have started our constant velocity accordion, which means we are conducting the sky crane, about to conduct the sky crane maneuver. Sky crane maneuver has started about 20 meters off the surface. We're getting signals from MRL. Tango Delta. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars. We are starting to straighten up. So that's a real exciting uh, moment for the mission and for all of us. Um, Mars, like Earth, is influenced by conditions created by the sun. And so in celebration of uh, these events, I thought we might consider what happens on the sun. And the topic and the related phenomena generally go by the name space weather, although I will not stick to it uh, religiously. It may be worth noting that the space weather forecast, forecasting is roughly about 50 to 60 years behind uh, terrestrial weather forecasting, but we are rapidly catching up. So I gave uh, two titles to the organizers. They chose uh, this one. The other one was less violent. Um, but I will explain the title as we go along. For uh, centuries, the sun has been thought of as a perfect sphere. And indeed, is, on the average, it is very close to being one. Its eccentricity is extremely small. And so the radiation and the, uh, and the particles that the sun emits, one might imagine, would be spherically symmetric. The problem with this picture is that it is never true. The sun, in fact, is a highly variable star. All the time, there is some region in the sun that is more active than others. And once in a while, as in this figure, you can see these huge eruptions, both of radiation and uh, high energy particles happening. And the radiation might reach us in about eight minutes and the particles may take a little bit longer uh, depending on their energy and speed. And this video that I am going to, uh, this is a, an example of a flare that happened on um, April 16, 2012. But I want to show you this video, which will, uh, which will tell us a little bit more dynamically as to what is happening. And uh, the uh, charged particles that, emit, that are emitted that might reach way out into, into the space would be in the order of billions of tons of ejection per second, and the event could last for a few hours. If you block out the middle part, you can see that these... Um, these uh, eruptions reach very far into space. 
And uh, therefore, the question to ask is, what if one of those violent eruptions reached the Earth? My talk today would really be about that, uh, in what the effects are on humans in both space and on Earth. My that my question is really important is borne out by this uh, statement. Um, um, I don't know, I get some stuff, okay. Um, but the statement in Forbes, Forbes magazine, this multi-trillion dollar disaster is coming and solar astronomy is our prime defense. So that's really going to be my uh, position as well. And in fact, the U.S. Congress, which is not always known for speedy action, lately recognized uh, the importance of uh, this by uh, passing a law on October 21st uh, last year, whose goal is in fact to establish an interagency working group from NOAA, NASA, Departments of Defense and Interior, and some other agencies, both to monitor the phenomena and to alleviate their effects. So it's something that we should all be thinking about in, uh, in general. And um, uh, this slide shows how the, the magnetism on the surface of the Earth erupts um, very often. And what I want to say in this uh, short video that I will just show you is how the magnetic activity is so dynamic on the sun. Like the Earth, the Sun is also magnetic. And in this picture, what you see is on the top, the green lines have a certain science, a positive in this case. And the opposite is in the magenta and the south pole of the Sun. This circle you see here in the middle would be, would be the Sun. Now I'm going to show you how the magnetic activity evolves um, as time uh, passes by. And in this video, 16 years of data have been compressed in 25 seconds. And so let's just remember that the top is green and uh, the bottom is uh, magenta. And as, as I run this, you can see the magnetic activity fluctuates from one uh, time to another. And in fact, sometimes the middle, the, the sun is relatively quiescent. Sometimes it is uh, very violent. And if we keep uh, doing this, uh, somewhere here, if I stop the video, you can see that the magenta has now turned out to be at the top and the, and the green at the bottom. Now this reversal of the magnetic sign of the sun is a very important event in the in the um, in the problem that I am going to discuss. And surprisingly, uh, it takes about eleven years for the polarity of the sun to change from one direction to another. And as the magnetic field readjusts itself during this transition, occasionally we have these very intense uh, eruptions. By the way, the Earth also changes its magnetic uh, polarity, but it does not happen with any regularity, and it takes sometimes uh, 100,000 years or something very large. We will probably not see that happen in our lifetime. Now, we'll discuss how this adjustment takes place and so forth um, uh, in, a, in a bit. 
I should say that not every flare like the one we saw in the, in one of the previous uh, slides reaches the Earth, luckily, because the magnetic field of the Earth, which I have shown in the top uh, picture here, um, one pole here and the other here of the Earth and the magnetic field lines. Now, if the, if the magnetic field from the Sun um, arrives at uh, or near the Earth, which is uh, shown here in the little circle, the magnetic field of the Earth protects us from the direct effects of the storm. And when the Earth faces these uh, oncoming charged particles, it adjusts its magnetic field in such a way that on the side facing the Sun, the field lines get compressed and expel the solar particles to go around the Earth. And uh, this is what the bottom picture is actually showing. And given enough energy of the charged particles, the magnetic field to the rearward facing direction of the Earth could also change greatly and deposit charged particles on the Earth. Aside from that, there are three major hazards of solar flares and which are very harmful to us. Here I've shown a, um, an artist's rendering of the satellites now flying about the Earth. There are many, many of them. Uh, by the way, here, if you can see my cursor is where UAE is. Many, many of them flying around, although, of course, these are all not to the size and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the uh, satellite business is uh, very thriving, and yearly business is on the order of 300 billion or so. Um, the satellites are at a height above the shielding layer of the Earth's magnetic field, and so the particles, the high-energy particles arriving from the flare, can deposit uh, charge on the electronic equipment of the satellites and produce short circuits and render the satellites inoperable. Remember just how much we depend on the satellites for communication purposes. If we lose satellite communications, we will have no TV, no communications, military or, or civil, drones, planes, aircraft, carriers, ships will not work. I hope we won't be flying when this happens. No internet, no GPS, making many deliveries and travel and computerized um, water supply, etc., cetera, uh, to be derailed. And uh, secondly, the power grid, electric power grid could be shortened, shorted, affecting utilities, global businesses, etc. It's not really just a one-time loss. If that happens, if most of this happens, let's say, it takes something like between two and 10 years for us to recover from this. And so we might be set back by something like 20 years if something like this happens. If that's not a good enough reason or a disastrous enough reason for us to be concerned, what happens is that the satellites fly in low orbit of the Earth and the, the, there is not much air there, but still there is some. And therefore, the satellites usually have a certain drag force on them. And when, um, when the solar particles arrive in this, these altitudes, the number of particles increases, so the drag increases. So the satellites drift slowly into lower orbits where the density of particles is more. And then that puts the satellites in lower orbits still. Eventually, they can burn up in the atmosphere. 
So unless the satellites boost themselves periodically in their designed orbits, all of them will burn themselves up. Usually satellites do that about four times a year to make up for this drag. For example, the International Space Station has to boost its orbit once a month or two. If the solar activity is very large, many more particles from the sun appear, and thus the satellites have to be maneuvered every week or so to maintain their orbit. In fact, many satellites get lost, and here is a depiction of the number of satellites that sort of get lost. And the yellow line here shows an event, a magnetic storm in 1989. And you can see the number of lost satellites just increased substantially immediately after. Finally, of course, the space weather is hazardous for planetary exploration with human crew. The high energy radiation not only affects electronic equipment, but also damages living tissue of humans radiation sickness, damage to DNA and cells, uh, and even death are space weather concerns for astronauts who might fly to the moon, and especially the multi-year journey to Mars, which is foreseen, for example, within about 100 years by the UAE Space Agency. Large flares can produce lethal radiation environments on the moon or in interplanetary space, where they don't have the benefit of the shielding of the Earth's magnetic field. So this is one of the aspects in which our center is working. And therefore, altogether, these are excellent reasons for us to want to know, understand how these eruptions occur, how to predict them, and how to shield ourselves from the major effects. This is what I will try to do. Before that, let me ask if we have a record of such storms uh, hitting the Earth any time in the past and what effects did it have? Uh, yes, we indeed have such records of storms having hit us in the last, say, 100 years or uh, a few hundred years, although past records are not um, very good, and also they are not exactly applicable to us, as I will explain. One of the most energetic events to have occurred is the so-called Carrington event, which I have uh, shown uh, here, which occurred in 1859. And it took about 18 hours to travel the 15 million kilometers from the sun to the earth. And uh, what did the Carrington event do? Um, remember, we had very little by way of technology then. And the, uh, uh, the earth's population was 1.2 billion, as opposed to 7.8 billion today. And what it did at that time was to fuse many telegraph wires of the still nascent technology shocked the operators, spun many auroras, and started many fires across the world. So several studies have estimated that, given our population density of 7.8 billion, as I said today, and our immense reliance on technology, the financial cost would be of the art of a few trillion dollars, taking about two to 10 years to restore, as I already mentioned. Such storms occur actually pretty often. It's not so rare. Um, luckily, the Earth is not always in the way of these storms. For example, here is a storm that uh, took place in, uh, on uh, September 10, 2017. And here is the sun. And here is the Earth. 
Luckily for us, the storm uh, just uh, grazed by the earth and it went off and hit uh, Mars directly. And it had um, considerable impact on the atmosphere of the Mars significantly for a period of time. The effects might have been uh, disastrous for us if uh, this has hit, had hit us and we were in the path. The probability that such events hit the Earth is small, as we all recognize, but we cannot say that it is minuscule. The probability of a Carrington-like event in this decade has been estimated by experts to be about uh, um, 2% or so, the same as the 8 to 9 uh, Richter scale earthquake along the San Andreas fault line, for instance. We know that it is going to happen, but when exactly will it happen, we just don't know. That's, at least that's an attitude we'll take for a little while. Since we cannot prevent them, the situation is uh, how we prepare for them. The, it's not very different from how we prepare for the storms, hurricanes, and other large-scale hazards by boarding up windows and doors and things like that. To understand, uh, uh, to, uh, to understand what happens, we have to know a little bit about what is happening in the interior of the Earth. And uh, although uh, you, you know about the uh, sun uh, all the time, uh, it's good for me to recapitulate a little bit as to what happens. There is the central part of the sun here, about 15% of the so or so, where the temperature and pressure are very high. And uh, this is called the core. And here is where nuclear fusion takes place. So all the um, hydrogen gets fused into uh, helium and emits photons and neutrinos in the process. Neutrinos escape uh, without any fuss, but the photons take a very long time to escape because the density of the matter is very high. And uh, uh, nevertheless, the reach around uh, this radius of the sun, let's say 70% of the radius. At that uh, radius, the temperature of the Earth is, uh, the sun is not high enough for radiation to be effective. And therefore, the only way this thermal energy coming from inside the sun because of the nuclear reactions to be transported out to the surface of the sun and thus to the uh, rest of the solar system would be through what is known as convection. Convection is a process which you all know is what you see when you put a pot of water on the stove. After some heating, the water at the bottom of the pot gets heated, becomes less heavy, and rises to the top, and of course the fluid from the top reaches the bottom. This bodily motion of the heart fluid to the top and vice versa carries heat and cold from the bottom to the top and vice versa. The reason that convection is very important to us is that it takes the magnetic field from the inside of the sun to the surface and initiates this generation of these violent eruptions. Unfortunately, we cannot look inside the sun but we can observe many things that happen on the surface of the sun. And this is done by many satellites that uh, have been launched over time. And in fact, if you expand the surface of the sun, on the, uh, you can see patterns like the one I've just shown, which is really very reminiscent of what happens in convection. And in fact, you can also see these so-called sunspots 
which are which is where the magnetic field punches through the surface of the uh, sun, so to speak, perhaps resulting from convection, etc. So I want to sort of understand uh, from convection to what happens to the magnetic field to what happens to the eruptions, and then look at how they travel and how we may predict. And uh, you know, this is the whole cycle that I have in my mind at the moment. By the way, I want to mention a, a human story, um, a story of human interest uh, now at this point. The person who first pointed out that the constitution of the sun is really um, mostly hydrogen and helium was Cecilia Paine uh, Gaposhkin, who proposed it in her thesis when she was 25 years old at Harvard. But three important men at the time, her, her own advisor, Harlow Shapley at Harvard, Henry Norris Russell, very important astronomer at Princeton, Sir Arthur Eddington of Cambridge, also a very important person, thought that it was in error. So she downplayed the importance of her own discovery. A few years later, however, Russell came to the same conclusion and published it. Of course, he praised Napine, um, but it was a little late. Um, Nevertheless, take what lesson you want from this episode. And in fact, there are many like that in the history of science. Years later, uh, she wrote as follows. Young people, especially young women, often ask me for advice. Here it is. Do not undertake a scientific career in quest of fame or money. There are easier and better ways to reach them. Undertake it only if nothing else will satisfy you. For nothing else is probably what you will receive. Your reward will be the widening of the horizon as you climb. And if you achieve that reward, you will ask for no other. It's just a side uh, note. Now, I want to go back to convection. The convection in the sun is affected by the rotation of the sun. The sun is not sitting still. It goes about its own axis. Actually, not exactly its own axis, but never mind. Um, I show this slide just to illustrate the effect of rotation on the sun. A here is the convection patterns without rotation and this with rotation taken from this paper. And you can see that the small scales are many in number and in fact near the equator, um, the structure of the convection cells is quite different. In fact, you can see this even better in a simple geometry like a, a cylinder where this is heated and this is uh, cooled, and this is the pattern shape without uh, rotation. And as the rotation increases, the structures become more and more parallel to the axis of rotation. And this has an important consequence to how the convection actually performs. So the most important um, uh, influence of the combination of uh, convection rotation is the so-called differential rotation. Differential rotation, as I've shown here, it means that the sun does not rotate like a solid body, like the Earth or any other rocky planet would do. But the equator of the sun is rotating much faster than the poles do. The equator rotates once in, 20, once in 25 days, whereas near the poles, it's one in 34 or 35 days, something like that. 
So in fact, this differential rotation has a very important consequence to how the magnetic field uh, behaves and uh, how one uh, actually um, even figures out what's going on. Aside from this, there is another important factor. This is known as the meridional circulation. That is to say that here is the equator of the sun and the pole, two poles. On the surface of the sun, there is a slow drift of velocity from the equator to the poles. And to compensate for that, there's a drift of velocity from the pole to the, uh, to the equator uh, near, this, uh, near the edge of the uh, convection region. And so this sort of thing goes on like that here in this hemisphere and the opposite way in this hemisphere and likewise on the other side as well. And in fact, um, my colleagues uh, in, uh, in the Center for uh, um, Space Science are very much involved in this and these pictures are taken from uh, their work. So you have to remember these two important factors when I explain what goes on in the sun. Here now is, um, is the magnetic field line uh, from the top, that is the, the North Pole to the South Pole, as shown uh, here by these wiggly lines. And these wiggly lines have a certain direction, which is telling you that there's a certain polarity to them. Now, as the sun rotates, just remember that the equator rotates faster than the poles. Therefore, what happens is it winds the magnetic field lines a tighter and tighter near the equator than it does near the poles. So eventually after a little bit of rotation, you can see that the magnetic field lines no longer are vertical lines, but are uh, circles uh, centered around, uh, near, the, near the, um, uh, the bottom of the convection region, for instance. So this is what you see in figure B. And this is the so-called toroidal uh, patterns. And now imagine it's like a uh, like um, winding a winding a rubber band around, and it becomes tighter and tighter. And sometimes it just uh, it just uh, um, uh, snaps back, and that's the kind of thing that happens uh, here. So one of these things that say goes out like that, but goes out in this fashion. It erupts in one part, and this is a sunspot, and another sunspot pair is one into which it, it goes. The magnetic field lines have to either um, uh, 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 either end on this solid surface or to connect to themselves. So that's the way they always appear in pairs, and these pairs are the ones where the magnetic field lines appear. Now what happens uh, is that um, as these field lines appear and magnetic activity happens, and also because the meridional circulation the field lines get pushed uh, like that uh, from the equator to the poles on the surface of the sun. And so what, is, what happens is the magnetic field lines re-emerge uh, as, uh, as polyidal field lines as shown here. And eventually you have something like what we started before. But what has happened is instead of the magnetic field lines with arrows going um, from bottom to top as the beginning of the uh, cycle, now they're oriented from the uh, top to bottom. So the magnetic activity of the sun has reverted to its old form, except that the sign has changed. And in fact, that's what I will uh, demonstrate a little bit um, uh, better 
Uh, and that's uh, here. See if you see this uh, video. Here are the magnetic field lines. So they are continually uh, shaping up like this, uh, quite a lot of them. And not every uh, eruption like this uh, or every formation like this will lead to eruption. But what uh, really leads to eruption is this so-called reconnection process. And I want to illustrate that um, by, by another little video. Uh, but first, uh, look at what is happening with the schematic I've drawn. Let's say there are two field lines, one red and one blue, which indicates that there are uh, different polarity. When they come close together, they cut each other and they reconnect in such a fashion that half of the red and half of the blue become one unit and the same thing happens in another unit and they recede from each other with uh, with violent activity and uh, nobody has been able to do this uh, for a magnetic field lines so i have done this for um, for another type of singularity known as quantum vortices but the idea is the same and you will see uh, in this uh, what happens um, uh, okay there you see two field lines coming now how they cut and reconnect and move about move out with uh, extreme speed and here is another illustration of the, the same thing and i want to uh, run it um, uh, one more time just to be sure we we understand the picture um so you see that uh, reconnection is what uh, gives rise to uh, the repulsion of these uh, magnetic field lines and the material that is associated with them that causes for the eruptions um, uh, that we are always concerned about. So here, the upshot is that here is the situation A, where the magnetic field is very simple, uh, you know, from north to south, there is no big issues, and the solar activity is minimal. And in B, uh, the magnetic field line is trying to change, and you have this enormous activity on the sun. And if you uh, come to the graph that I have shown here. A is where the, this is the sunspot number. This is related to the number of spots, which is where the magnetic field punches through. The number is a function of time, and it sort of goes up and goes down. Uh, a is when there is very little activity, and B is when there is very large activity, and goes back in this. And the amazing thing is that in spite of all these complexities, there's an approximate periodicity of about 11 years between the maximum, uh, one maximum and another, or one minimum and another. Now, the eruptions we are interested in happen usually when the magnetic activity is large. And therefore, the question now is, we are here, some, we are here somewhere. Uh, actually, this graph doesn't go all the way to where we are. We are uh, emerging out of the out of the minimum and getting into the into another uh, maximum that is supposed to happen in 2025, which is why I use the number in the title. So the question now is, how can we predict the activity for the next cycle, number 25? And there are basically three types of predictions one generally makes. One is the so-called precursor method, that is to say, if something happens here today, you know that something else happens somewhere else tomorrow. For example, the El Nino happens in uh, the Pacific Ocean this year, 
and next year you'll have many more hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. We don't understand every little bit of the details, but uh, the correlation is quite strong. You can do that for the sun by knowing what the uh, polar magnetic strength is, for instance. Another one is the regression method. That is, you know what it is yesterday, today, uh, and the day before, and then you can sort of make a regression and say what it will be like tomorrow. Of course, these methods are very sophisticated, and it has, if it has worked many times before, it may work quite well um, in this instance as well. The various these various types of predictions are uh, possible, and there are a group of experts that actually come together uh, every so often uh, to predict uh, just exactly what will happen. And as I have shown in this figure, so let's say we start out um, at 20, 20 um, uh, 0.5, let's say this is a few months old, and you try to predict what may happen in the next uh, 2022 20, or thereabouts, you can see there is a range of uncertainty, and this is the general trend that one uh, thinks will actually occur. And this is another type of prediction, uh, essentially the same idea. And an average prediction is shown in the bottom figure, where we are here in 2020, uh, 2021 now, so somewhere here, emerging from this minimum, and the expectation is that it will be like that, peaking around 2025, uh, but it is not a very large activity like many of the other activities uh, have been in the past. Um, it does not mean that there will be no uh, big eruptions. It may just be that those eruptions, uh, in fact, uh, reach us, um, but the point is that the, um, the, the solar activity is not going to be one of the worst activities um, in the history of uh, this uh, phenomenon, for instance. But some people believe that a Carrington-type event is overdue and might take place uh, anytime now. There's a final method of uh, prediction of these events, and uh, this is the uh, model-based prediction uh, which is of uh, great interest to scientists in general. This is by solving the equations of motion directly rather than statist by statistical extrapolation. This is not possible at the moment fully, um, but it's a favored method, as I said, but I give you uh, some hints as to how this method uh, works. So this is what is shown in this picture. You uh, certainly will have heard about um, uh, things like Rossby waves on the, on the, on the Earth. The Rossby waves have an important effect on the on the weather um, patterns on the Earth. These are the meandering wavy motions that you see here, uh, pushing the fluid or air uh, from the mid latitudes to poles, and from the poles to mid latitudes. So, in fact, you have a basically moderate temperature everywhere. But if the if this wave does not move about but instead uh, stays put without moving east or west, hot and cold regions persist without any change, and one could have a very frigid weather to the northern part of the US, for instance, which is what I know a little bit, and which is why I'm using that as example, and, um, or it might be a very pleasant one. Looking down on the Earth, as I have shown here on the left of the bottom panel, uh, this is the polar region, and you see these, these are the waves. This is how the waves appear going around the, uh, the Earth. 
Now, similarly, if you sort of look around uh, to the from the poles onto the uh, onto the sun, you have uh, something like a wave that goes on around, and this is the magnetic activity that is plotted here. So this suggests that something like a Rossby wave is possible. And in fact, if that Rossby wave happens, as I've shown to the right of the top panel, you might have uh, fixed regions of uh, activity, like uh, you have uh, either frigid cold or, uh, or uh, uh, nice weather. You might have large activity or very little activity on the surface of the sun. In fact, you may get an idea better if you look at this video, um, which I hope you can see. Okay, I think that should be enough. So and none of these methods, which are all very nice, uh, both statistical and, uh, and uh, mechanistic, are useful, um, for, uh, as useful, let's say, as actually observing the surface of the, um, the sun and developing criteria by which we may determine which floor is coming and which is dangerous, etc. If we can do that, uh, that will be great. And of course, it means putting um, many satellites uh, around the sun and, uh, and observing whenever these uh, huge excursions take place. Now, so what we can do is if we have adequate notice, we can um, uh, board up all our uh, windows, uh, as you, uh, I mean, uh, equivalent of that. And um, usually uh, in our satellite observations, we look at only one side of the sun. And to do this well, we have to launch satellites that look at it on all sides. Now, traditional satellite missions are very expensive. And therefore, if you suggest to anybody that you should have four or five of the satellites around uh, all uh, angles of the sun, it would be impossible to uh, support it. But in fact, there was a study at the National Academy of Sciences whose title was Achieving Science with CubeSats, which are little satellites and not as expensive and do not have these as many instruments and do not require many international collaborations and partnerships and consortia in order to make it happen. And so using these CubeSats, it may be possible to observe some different angles at the same time. A few CubeSats would, for the first time, uh, provide us a full view of the sun, and uh, then we will be able to uh, observe uh, and understand what is happening and react properly. There's a lot of blurb here, which I am not taking you through, um, but I want to address one uh, final important point, and that is the effect of uh, space weather and global warming. Now, this is a very controversial topic, as you know very well, and I want to explain what the controversy is and what we know and what we don't. In fact, if you look at the record of the sunspots, as I've shown in the top figure, uh, from about 1600 or so to about uh, 2010 or thereabouts. Now, this is a very compressed figure, and in fact, the 
uh, the graph that is plotted here is a very highly smoothed out um, uh, smoothed out uh, uh, here. So it doesn't show you all these uh, fluctuations. In fact, from the uh, from this graph, approximately from about uh, 1650 uh, or so uh, to about 1730 or thereabouts, the sun was really very quiet. It's called the Maunder minimum. And uh, nobody was uh, observing any sunspots, uh, so to speak. Um, I, another human uh, story of human interest is, uh, I forget the name of this person, but uh, it was an important person in astronomy. Around 1650, he decided he was going to study the solar uh, spots, sunspots, because it was an important activity. And he waited and waited and waited for, um, you know, some 30 years before he actually found one spot. This goes to show you have to um, approach a research problem at the right time. And there are good times and bad times, luck and uh, bad luck. Uh, anyhow, outside of that, now this Maunder minimum, it turns out uh, the Earth was actually cooler, cooler uh, by a measurable amount. And it is also referred to as a mini ice age. Winters were longer, harder, crops froze, famines resulted as, um, uh, in consequence, d various diseases spread, etc. There are also other periods where the sun was not as quiet, but uh, sort of similarly quiet. For example, this thing called the Dalton minimum, where it was not, it was relatively quiet, so to speak. And it's also true that during the Dalton um, uh, minimum, this is the same Dalton, by the way, whom you know by the law of partial pressures. Um, um, during uh, Dalton minimum too, the earth was a little bit cooler. And so some will press this issue further. Is it uh, correct to say that human activity is responsible for the observed increase in global temperature? Or more to the point, if we have, uh, in, uh, compared to what was happening here, a somewhat quieter cycle here, and the next one is going to be quiet as well, and maybe the next few will be quiet as well. Um, at least uh, will it not um, uh, diminish the rate of the rapid climb of the temperature that has been projected, um, even if it doesn't lower the temperature of the Earth. So what one does, it's like uh, what people might do for predicting uh, uh, climate or even, uh, even weather. Um, for example, um, suppose I want to I want to make an assessment of uh, of this effect. Uh, we may take a previous record, for example, the record just before the Dalton minimum, and see what kind of pattern of the sunspots was there. And now we transfer this signature to the signature of these uh, solar spots. Uh, in in, uh, in uh, the period just before our present time and see if there's a correspondence between them. If there is a sufficient correspondence and if the sun really acts in a regular fashion, it may be possible to say by extrapolation that, yeah, maybe something like a Dalton minimum is possible. For example, um, excuse me, at the bottom of the figure, what you see is... Um, 
the black ones are uh, the signatures just before our time and we are uh, here somewhere 20 um 20 like that and uh, this figure was prepared a little bit ago so it doesn't go all the way up to here and the red one is really the history the historical record just before the dalton minimum so if you uh, if you say that well there is a significant correspondence between what happened just before dalton minimum and just before the present you might say well maybe there's a chance that um, minor activities uh, might be the case on the sun of course who knows whether that's true or not but most climate scientists agree that sunspots and space weather may be playing a role on climate change but the vast majority of the view is that it's a minimal effect and the attribution is more to um, the recent warming uh, due to emissions from industrial activity indeed they point out that even in uh, in this case of maunder minimum there were other reasons that might have contributed to the cooling of the earth rather than the uh, sun's activity itself so um uh, ladies and gentlemen i um, uh, don't want to take uh, your time much more but i want to tell you uh, what i have tried to do I've taken you through a number of essential ideas of space weather, um, including the science of it and the and the economics of it and the predictive power that we have and uh, the science that goes on, but uh, all of them in a very sketchy fashion for obvious reasons. But my case is that uh, the understanding and prediction of those um, events uh, that happen on the surface and correspondingly what happens inside the sun are essential to avoiding the catastrophic technological failures that will come our way. Um, I have no doubt that it will happen uh, sometime, but of course, like the big earthquake uh, in California, who knows when it will happen. But the thing is, uh, this is from the practical end and from the end of, um, end of uh, uh, science. A sun is the most important um, um, uh, important entity in our solar system. Everything that happens on the Earth is because of the sun. And therefore, it is important for us to be able to understand what happens uh, inside the sun and on the sun and shedding some um, light on the challenges that uh, lie in our times, including uh, climate change, for instance. In our center, we work on different aspects of this big issue. And of course, you are welcome to join that effort. I want to thank um, um, the Institute once again for the opportunity. And I want to thank my colleagues uh, who have been uh, instrumental in helping me. They're all here. Thank you for joining this and uh, good day to you.
Yeah, Professor Srinivasan, thank you so much for your insight. It has been a, a very, very interesting session. And I can see that the, our audience is uh, having few questions for you. If you would have a few minutes to address them, that would be great. Um, I think it's time to invite our audience to the table and hear back from them. So the first question, if you can hear me, it says about reconnection, field lines have no physical manifestation themselves. It is the current density that makes them so what is the picture of reconnection in terms of the current density? Um, so you might think of them uh, the way you just uh, mentioned. I always think field lines are as real as, uh, as the uh, particles themselves. But in very high Reynolds number flows like this, um, the fluid flow or the, or the plasma is really very strongly um, strongly connected to the magnetic field lines. And in fact, that is the reason why when magnetic field line reconnection takes place, you have the expulsion of uh, material, uh, which is not very obvious otherwise. I would say it is the enormous uh, Reynolds number in the, in the sun's flows that makes this... Uh, uh, happen uh, very uh, closely. Okay, so the second question from Clint Pinto, and he's asking, we know that the charged particles from solar flares can cause huge damage to our infrastructures. Uh, infrastructure. Does this have a major impact on human health? How can we better prepare uh, ourselves from uh, Carrington-like events, for example. Uh, I bet we can all agree that we cannot afford a new health environmental crisis. Yeah, uh, thank you for this. Um, so far as I know, um, I've uh, really looked uh, very hard. Uh, there have been no instances of uh, actual uh, loss of human life on Earth um, uh, after the Carrington event directly attributable to it. Um, but it is quite clear that there will be uh, considerable radiation. The aurora that uh, happened was so bright that during the middle of the day, uh, people could read, uh, middle of the night, people could read uh, newspapers and things like that. So you have uh, significant particle activity, and there may be some long-term uh, health issue there. But I don't believe that it has been documented very well. But the point is that one of the three reasons I mentioned that we should be concerned about is just exactly that, what it will do to our DNA, what it will do to our cells and things like that. And this would be particularly true for those uh, few of us who uh, will not be protected by the, uh, by the magnetic field of the Earth. Uh, so there are many interesting um, videos on the, on the web where you can see uh, what uh, one uh, what's, one speculates happened to the magnetic field of the Earth when uh, when uh, Carrington event hit. So in fact, uh, that is an important issue. Uh, I think it's a part of the study that one should uh, make. But uh, as far as I know, there is no real serious uh, record of what has happened. So do you think it should be something that the research community should focus on yeah, as in a preventive not, measure? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people are studying effects like that, not from the sun, perhaps, but uh, surely from radiations like that. Yeah. 
Perfect. So are there multiple layers of convection, uh, of convection currents? Mark uh, Horboski is asking. So uh, the whole convection you can think of as uh, one process uh, going from the bottom of the convection region to the top of the convection region. But it is often convenient to split it into different regions uh, simply because different parts are essentially independent of each other. For example, uh, the convection that takes place uh, very close to the surface of the sun uh, is uh, completely dominated by the cooling um, due to the radiation of uh, the surface of the sun. So uh, you might think of it as sort of independent, uh, and you can study that uh, essentially separately, uh, except for the fact that whatever is lost by radiation is supplied from the bottom by the by the lower regions of convection. So sometimes in order to study a very complex problem like convection, it's convenient and very useful to split it into different layers and different regions and study them. Uh, one region uh, would be connected to the other through only some uh, very elementary thing like a flux or boundary condition or something like that. So it's possible to uh, study convection in the sun in uh, different layers as well. But generally, the point is that it's one part of one single phenomenon. Perfect. Uh, so we have a, another question. Is there is any uh, practical advice to harmonize chaotic frequencies? Um, if it is a simple system, there are uh, people who have uh, looked at uh, very carefully as to how to control chaotic phenomena. Um, so the point of chaotic phenomena is that they are very sensitive to very small inputs. And therefore, if you provide an input at the right moment uh, to a chaotic system, even if the input is very small, it might change it in a, in a totally different direction. Uh, so this has been successfully adopted for very simple dynamical systems in practice, um, aside from theoretical interests. And there is a considerable work on the on the um, sun's part cycle to understand whether it's chaotic or not. First of all, uh, it's uh, periodic, but it is also, uh, there's a stochastic element on it, as you saw. Uh, the maximum and minima are not identical, for instance, and the period is not identical um, either. So you might ask whether it's chaotic and whether there's something one can do uh, to to change that and of course uh, what one can do to the sun is a very separate story but uh, the uh, the point is can one do something to the radiation that we receive the earth receives um, and uh, do it in some small way so the effect is relatively large this can be thought about and in fact there are models for the for the uh, solar activity i myself have been working on this for a while and there are, uh, if you think of forced oscillators, um, you can replicate many of the features of the of the um, uh, sunspot cycle uh, by such models. How um, and whether you can put it into practice, I do not know. For example, one extreme uh, case where people think about this is if the two degree um, rise in temperature of the Earth which people have predicted as a possibility in the next uh, few years, 
is real, then in fact there will be many huge repercussions on the on the Earth. So we may have to intervene somehow and limit the radiation that the Earth receives, maybe injecting particles into certain layers of the atmosphere, etc. So that may be equivalent to are trying to change the dynamics of a of a chaotic system but this is all speculative at the moment and sort of extreme speculation in my view uh, but yeah you can think about it like that and i am happy to discuss it more if you're interested so we have a follow-up question on this saying is there uh, are there any kind of experimental uh, analysis research uh, on these preventive measures you just described injecting particles around the atmosphere of earth um, not uh, uh, that I know, but um, there there were studies, um, for example, in 1970s, uh, when, which I remember very well, um, uh, there were studies made of uh, nuclear winter. That is uh, when uh, some, well, you know, there was so much concern about who might bomb the United States and there were many issues. And um, then if the uh, particulate matter that uh, arises from those reactions were somehow to prevent radiation coming from the sun, would it create something like a winter? A nuclear winter is what they called it. So there have been theoretical studies. Uh, I know there have been reports written on this, and I'm sure uh, we can dig them up. It would be great to have the public audience who's interested uh, be part of this like uh, simulation research if possible. Yeah, um, indeed. Uh, I think this can be done. Um, yeah, it takes uh, computational resources, but it can be done. Yeah, would the Center for Space Sciences and NYU Abu Dhabi be interested to incorporate this uh, kind of research with the public? Yes, yeah, space weather is one of our interests uh, coming about uh, from the um, interest that UAE has in Mars and Mars is a part of the solar system and Earth is a part of the solar system. So it's important for us to know. And sun is a, of great interest to us. So um, space weather seem to connect with everything and we are definitely interested in uh, these activities we work on uh, you know little parts at a time but in fact uh, the time has come for us to integrate them all together to form one collective group yeah, we are greatly interested in it in fact my own impression is that um, uh, uae uh, space agency uh, should probably have an active um, uh, group of people who will work in this and uh, it has many implications including as i said its understanding on uh, global warming well, whether in fact it is real or imagined or or whatever basically we will understand a lot of uh, phenomena yeah i'm sure they do uh, uh, collaborative research with universities uh, cross boards in uae and this is what they've done in the past uh, yeah. around similar topics so Renate Kohenberger, she's asking, is the convection geometrically speaking similar to the tectonic convection on Earth? Um, um, the convection that is similar is, um, let's say, in the, in the core of the Earth or in the mantle of the Earth. Um, and the flow speeds there are very slow. And the so-called mantle number is extremely large. So the similarities are, it, it too is a convection phenomenon, but its so-called Rayleigh number is relatively small, 
and the so-called Prandtl number is extremely large, uh, whereas in the sun, uh, the thing is very uh, opposite. The so-called Rayleigh number is extremely large. It is like 10 to the power 24 or something like that. And the Prandtl number, which is the ratio of the thermal diffusivity to viscosity to thermal diffusivity, is very small, something like 10 to the power minus 6. So the characteristics of convection are very different between uh, what happens on the sun and what happens in the earth. But the phenomena are essentially the same in the sense that it's the same equations that govern them all, except that the parameter ranges are very different. And therefore, the manifestation of convection could be very different. So we have one final question around what do you perceive the future challenges in this area of research and what are the quick wins for the research community? Um, when you say this area, you probably mean uh, this uh, huge area that I called uh, space weather and extreme events on the, space, on the sun and things like that. So, of course, it has uh, many ingredients. Uh, we talked about them. There is a convective part, there is the expulsion of the magnetic field lines, then there is a material that uh, goes out, um, how it spreads, uh, how it reaches the earth, and the impact on health, impact on infrastructure, and uh, how we may mitigate. So what kind of uh, economic consequences there are. So there is a, a huge range of activities uh, that I have tried to uh, put together for our brief discussion. And not, a, not a, any single person uh, can uh, do all this. So a group uh, can do all these uh, various things together. For example, even as simple as uh, convection, um, we don't really know whether uh, convection at very high Rayleigh numbers, which should be fully turbulent, highly stochastic, nevertheless, it supports um, cycles which are very periodic or nearly periodic, like 11 year cycles on the sunspots. So how does it happen that uh, such a stochastic phenomena yields place to um, uh, these uh, very regular patterns? Now that's a very important question to ask. And in fact, this is where uh, people are thinking maybe the uh, Rossby waves, maybe the magnetic Rossby waves that uh, emerge from the bottom of the convection region uh, to the surface of the sun. And if it is true, you can predict them much better than, uh, let's say, depending only on the stochastic uh, understanding of the problem. So already there is a huge area there that one has to cover. So going from one area to another uh, is a huge activity. I would say if we had a group of very uh, talented uh, uh, four or five people, it doesn't require many of them, working on different aspects, who collaborate uh, with a large uh, group outside, that would uh, make an immense progress in this area. Once more, a great insight, uh, Professor Srinivasan. It was a great pleasure to host you on the Institute and to have such an educational um, uh, analysis of a very critical uh, field of research. I think uh, the feedback that we have from the public audience, uh, they're very thankful 
for, for your observation here. Um, I think one last question that they're pushing through as well, with so much scientific observation, what is the percent that the attention would alter the result if subject is not already agreed to experiment? So I think if the subject is not under experimentation, as you have just discussed, how can I uh, discussed how can we raise public awareness about this and how can we bring it to to have like this kind of substantial value for the community for the research community and the industrial community out there that's such a wonderful question and uh, here of course our talks like um, ours uh, you know could be very useful generally uh, bring out the awareness but more importantly um, uh, government bodies can play a very important role. Uh, I mentioned already the law that the U.S. Congress passed. Whether it will have an effect or not, we will see. But just look at uh, UAE, for instance. Not very long ago, there wasn't any space activity in the country. But the leadership of the country just put its mind to it and said, well, we will, we will have this and worked very hard. UAE uh, engineers and scientists worked extremely hard. I know that for a fact. And the result is there is a, there is a, um, a mission and uh, going on in the orbit. And the awareness of space science in UAE has just gone up immensely, I would say, in the last um, even just seven or eight years. So in fact, actions like this uh, make a very important impact on um, on. Uh, on uh, what the scientific community and the general community uh, would would react to. So, uh, just as an uh, illustration, the UAE Space Agency said, "Well, this is a very important problem, and we really have to put our mind to it." I think many things can happen in that region, and a lot of wonderful opportunities can occur for younger people, many of whom are really so much interested in science, space science. And uh, occasionally many of them write to me, but I can't uh, always accommodate them. So this is a, an interesting uh, question and uh, there are many aspects to this. Yeah. And I think we have one last question uh, as a follow-up to your conversation here on creating uh, community value through opening research in UAE to such topics. Uh, Chaimei is asking uh, if there are any undergraduate studies in this field dedicated uh, either graduate or undergraduate study in this field, either in NYU New York or NYU Abu Dhabi? And if not, would you foresee in the future opening PhD positions or master degree kind of uh, research on this field? In our center, we are really working on different aspects of it. And so we welcome greatly any undergraduate or any student interested in graduate work uh, to contact me, and I will uh, I will try to work with them. There are bureaucratic reasons why things cannot always happen, you know, um, hiring a person, etc., um, etc. Et but uh, we have a complete interest in uh, intellectual collaborations and also uh, supporting students by small amounts of money, etc. Is not an issue. Um, so I think the first thing we have to do is, if somebody is interested, please uh, write to me and uh, we'll go from there. I am uh, very much interested in uh, getting students interested. And already, uh, Dimitri Hartry, one of yeah. our scientists, there are a number of undergraduates who are working with him. 
and increasing them uh, is absolutely a delight. A great call, and I hope that the community is listening and hopefully soon enough we'll have this level of research here in UAE. We have another question. Do you have any comments on biosphere communities such as Terra? Um, no, not really. I, I, no, it's I a very wide question, I would say. Uh, thank you. Okay. So I think it's it's uh, it's a great uh, opportunity for us uh, to end the conversation here uh, and to say thank you so much for your fascinating insights and for your great conversation here and uh, taking us through this uh, very educational scientific journey on the sun and getting us uh, to understand more about the research that is happening in the background. And hopefully soon we'll hear more about uh, the Center for Space Sciences in NYU Abu Dhabi on this regard. I would encourage our public audience to definitely contact you and the center directly for any follow-up uh, kind of conversations. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for uh, hosting me and uh, taking me through all these questions. I greatly appreciate the Institute of the, the Interests of the Institute and I want to thank again um, all the people who attended uh, this uh, meeting. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.